0: How's it going, fellow naturalists? This is your co-host, the single acorn professor Iwiki, and yeah, I wanted to extend a very special and warm welcome to you for this season, which is a subject that is very near and dear to my heart because it combines two of my absolute greatest passions, uh, the first being natural history and the second being running, and specifically endurance running. So I know in previous seasons, we've definitely made a bunch of jokes about how you should never learn uh, learn how to live by looking at the natural world and, yeah, looking at the secret lives of wild creatures. But in this season, that is exactly what we're going to be doing. So we're going to take a look over the next few weeks at the wacky world of endurance. So we'll look at some of the challenges, both on the mental and the physical side of prolonged physical exertion. And then we'll highlight some of the different uh, creative solutions that animals have for sneaking around some of these challenges. And our season is gonna culminate with me doing a race uh, out in Milwaukee called Six Days in the Ro- uh, the Dome. And at that race, I'll be attempting to break the world record for 100 miles. So a pretty audacious goal. And yeah, we're gonna yeah spend the next few episodes uh, talking about sort of weaving in my training philosophy, my training uh, in practice. And uh, yeah, look generally at what the world of endurance is. Yeah, so stay tuned and see what it takes to push the limits of the human and animal body. And yeah, welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. But first, as always, a word from our sponsor.
1: Ow! That's not just my howl, it's also my call for you to get off your hind legs and pick up some ow! chafing cream. As a long distance runner, I know how sore I get after a hunt whether it's my paws, my nose, or my nipples. Ah, Ah-woo! Chafing Cream is here to take the edge off any soreness. And it doesn't leave a scent. So when you're tracking prey or exploring territory, you're free to leave your own. Ah, Ah-woo! Pick up a pack today.
0: Well, hey there, fellow naturalists. I am Professor Iwigi with Crow's Path, and I am joined today by, or with, Dr. Wait, I am joined by...
2: Are you conjoined
0: with like a Siamese twin type? I'm, You're joined I'm conjoined on. with Dr. Klinger, <laughs> yes, thank you. Exactly. <laughs> she is currently attached to my left hip. <laughs> and uh, hey, Christine.
1: Hi, it's another season.
0: Yes, it is. It is. It's season five. Uh, we skipped a season and we went right to season five. Give me five. Season? All about endurance. And uh, Christine, it looks like you've got a little guest
1: Oh, I do. Every now and then, you guys might hear a little peepis, and that's because I have a chick, a sick chick, in my lap right now. So we have a fourth co-host, and the name of this chip chick is Cheap Monk, in oh. case you care. Nice name.
0: Right. I like it. And uh, we are joined with... Ugh, why am I so dumb? <laughs> on! We are joined on? We are joined by? Yeah. Through... We are joined through, through. <laughs> we are channeling the medium that is Glenn Etter. <laughs> and Glenn, uh, I'm really glad to have you. So yeah, Thank season you. five is all about endurance. And we're going to start talking about endurance in humans, and then relate that to endurance in animals. And Glenn is the lead trainer over at Kennel to 5K Dog Training. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm told that you guys train dogs for their first uh, competitive 5Ks.
2: That's right. We do that. We, we have sort of a motto, you know, don't be a dog walker, be a dog runner. <laughs> so um, a lot of times we'll have sort of elementary school age children that are trying to get better in track, like hold onto a leash and get pulled behind the dogs. That incru- improves their running speed as well. So it's oh. kind of a win-win.
1: Do these dogs just run the 5K to brag about it to their friends?
2: I think so. <laughs> I think that's why everybody bucket. runs a 5K. yeah yeah, oh, and please. for the um you know, the gift packs, the bottle of water, the oranges,
1: yeah. and Can the dogs other eat do- bananas,
2: uh, yeah, yeah, if they're trained properly, I mean, that's part of our training, of course. <laughs> we don't just send them out there to <laughs> eat a banana with no training. Bananas. Yeah, you can't without an opposable we give them opposable thumbs, these sort of mittens, which helps oh. them. Sp- yeah, that helps them on their back feet it helps them spring forward spring well, forward that's not back No,
1: business all itself. You know, I think
2: dogs would be
0: probably a good candidate to evolve into having a, an opposable thumb.
1: They would be a good candidate for just robo hands. I think. Well, they have
2: that that fifth digit, that little dew claw that's like raised yeah. up a yeah, little bit? Yeah, the dew claw is waiting to evolve. Totally. It's another yep. one of our mottos. We yeah, we were trying to teach them to hold um, you know hold like those running bottles that distance runners hold i mean oh, yeah. water bottles yeah water running bottles running water uh-huh. bottles yeah we have a hard time coming up with a name for them so we call them water bottles for dogs yeah with... <laughs> it's a pretty good name i think yeah <laughs> it, you're usually better at marketing <laughs> Well, you know the dogs are so cute. We don't really have to use our marketing skills. You know, a big running dog pulling a small child behind it in a in a race. I mean, that's... What about Pupperware instead of Tupperware? Oh, that is
1: <gasps> like, especially for like. Copyrighted a little too close.
2: Oh, yeah, it might be. I think for the running outfits, you know, the the spandex shorts, the sort of more aerodynamic dog. <laughs>
1: you know, it's funny. It would be yeah.
2: definitely called pupperware. It's wear.
1: funny that this business is taking off. I did a similar thing with cats, and well, they just lay down. This is really, yeah. really
2: yeah. hard. Have you tried big jungle cats, like cheetah? Cheetah's not yeah, as good for endurance. Yeah, that's how I lost my
1: arm. <laughs> That's why I have a robot. on
2: <laughs> Well see. It worked out well. Here, here's a good question. So, why are why
0: are dogs better runners than cats? I mean, this is tied into our. Maybe this is a
2: good segue into our discussion of endurance. This
1: is a fantastic segue.
2: For um, the dogs, you know, they run things down. You ever seen wolves? You ever been chased by a wolf yeah, pack we- for hundred miles? Oh, I'm, every <laughs> I have. Has. I haven't, but I've, I've I've dreamed about it, and it's 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 frightening. Um, yeah, don't they, 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 cats don't do that. They like pounce and.
1: Yeah, they're built for crowd. pouncing. They are perfect killing machines though, those cats. Cats, have, cats
0: are terrifying,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, they've got the perfect, likely, like the perfect width of, of jaw for, to.
2: Perfect. S-
1: yeah, stick into the vertebrae of whatever their prey is. But yeah, they're all, they put all of their anatomical evolutionary magic into those pouncing Pounce and kill. Dogs are pretty good. Dogs
2: are pretty good at killing, right? Let's give them some credit. Yeah, they are. But But yeah, uh,
0: and they do a lot of pouncing, but for things that are much smaller than them. So, I mean, there's like classic videos of foxes jumping, leaping vertically into the air and pouncing down on the snow to get voles. But with uh, cats, cats can take... uh, You know, I had a uh, a deer that I came across with a, a friend in the woods, and it had been killed and dragged by a bobcat, and you know, it was maybe five to ten times bigger than the bobcat. So they can take down things that are much bigger than them. But yeah, I mean, dogs are typically not relying on ambush to hunt larger things, but they're chasing them down and hunting them in packs. So they have to be much better at, you know, a cat would not have as much luck slowly stalking, yeah, their prey over longer distance. I was in... so they're not very good at
2: 5K, but they're so good at dragging. Sh- that's pretty impressive drag. That is true. You drag a cat. Maybe maybe drag <laughs> yeah. racing. Drag cats are racing. That's more into CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, when That's... I was in Alaska, actually. Sorry, Glenn. Go ahead. I
2: was going to go into our CrossFit for cats business. I'm not going to actually. <laughs> Done enough plugging. We'll plug. We'll thank plug you. you. Thank Glenn, you. Think,
1: yeah. Um, follow us on Instagram. Yeah. The what was I going to say. Oh, when I was in... You're in Alaska. Yeah, when I was in Alaska. I actually, so I was in Denali, and um, we heard about a, a pack of wolves that had taken down a caribou, and we went up the road to see it, and it was not a pack of wolves. It was one wolf that had taken down a caribou, hmm. and I found that to be super impressive. You could see through the binoculars. She was tagged, and she had, or she had a radio collar on, so she was obviously... Um,
2: radioactive.
1: She, yeah, radioactive, and she... <laughs> It was, I'm saying she because it was obviously a female because she had, you know, hanging teats like she was feeding a litter. So she was obviously very Whoa. committed to taking down this caribou to feed her family. But it was impressive huh. because I don't often think about uh, wolves as, as being solitary hunters. So that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Huh. I mean, there's also, they're also scavengers. So oh, for sure. it's, Was it definitely killed by the wolf? Or, yes, I mean, yes, yes. A, it was like
1: or... we were seconds. There was like a radio conversation it was like oh. we just saw this lady or this cool lady take down the thing
0: wow that's awesome so in my other life uh when i am not slowly wandering through the woods as a naturalist uh i am an endurance athlete and i have been running long distances since i was a wee little child i've been uh cleaning out my mom's basement i found a bunch of old videos And I found this one video that was from first grade of me running a mile race. (laughs) And it's pretty amazing. I was like super impressed because one of the things that's fun to watch with kids races is kids are really, really terrible at pacing themselves. (laughs) And so everybody will just sprint right in the beginning and then totally die and then kind of recover after they, you know, come back out of their uh, anaerobic meltdown. Yeah, their anaerobic meltdown and then they'll sprint again and then they'll like die and then they'll sprint and they go back and forth. But I had really good even pacing. I was pretty impressed.
2: Wow. T, from an early age.
0: Born to run. From an early age. I actually, in college, I got a, a joke award from the senior captains that was least improved since second grade. <laughs> <'cause> I, <laughs> I ran a 654 mile in, yeah. in, in, second grade? in second grade. Actually yeah. something
1: to be proud of. Didn't you say you had a mantra that you repeated to yourself in order to keep pace? What
0: was... I did my mom when I would when I was running my mom was really great as uh, my mom's she's really competitive but she was never a competitive distance runner but she had all these great little tricks and so she gave me this uh, mantra to repeat that was Pepsi Cola's got the beat and so I would just say that over and over again as I was <laughs> running but I so I've been competing in long distance running uh, yeah ever since I was in kindergarten essentially and Interestingly, I never really thought about the question of how far could I actually run. Like I considered myself a long distance runner in high school, but I never ran more than I think 14 miles was probably about the longest. And so there was never ever there was never a situation where I was running that it was actually at my physical capacity or my physical limits. And it wasn't until college that that question started of nagging in the back of my brain like how far could i go if i just started to run and one my this is back in 2004 my junior year of college i was going to study abroad in the spring and so i didn't have a spring track season to worry about so you
2: just ran there you just ran to your place where you're studying so you i ran, ran to greece guatemala uh, <laughs> oh, greece yeah tough choice yeah it was <laughs> yeah
0: uh yeah But I, uh, so I didn't have a spring season to worry about. So I decided that I was just going to put it all out there and run as far as I could. And not as far as I could, but I decided I was going to run from Chicago up north to Kenosha, Wisconsin. And this was not pre-internet days, but this was pre-internet research days for me. I barely used it for, you know, research. Um, And... I didn't know anybody who ran ultra marathons. I didn't even know they existed, and so I just, you know, I there were two things that were true in running. One is you don't walk in running, and two, you don't eat when you run or drink. Or cry. Um, you don't drink or cry. There's no crying in baseball uh, and running. And if you so, do cry, don't drink your tears.
2: <laughs> to
3: yeah, you really need that hydration. No drinking.
2: Yeah, or, Although or don't eat them. Salt
0: intake in, in ultra endurance running, you do need to take in salt, so drinking your tears might not be a terrible idea. Have you ever stopped to lick the road, like lick, lick like a salt lick while you were
1: running a race? Or a horse?
0: No, I haven't, but that's one of the reasons that moose car collisions are so common.
1: Yep. Uh, they're
0: just licking the roads.
2: Now, Teague, I don't want to sing your praises. Actually, I do. Aren't you. I may be, this may be inaccurate. Aren't you potentially the, the Guinness World Record holder in the hundred mile barefoot run? Except for the exorbitant fee they would charge. But you could have it technically I
0: yeah, I have probably run the fastest hundred K and Hundred Mile Barefoot of any human being to ever have existed. <laughs> yeah.
2: Damn <laughs> Yeah. And who will exist. We'll just say that now. Can't be proven wrong. Yes, right. for, for, yeah, for all time.
0: Yeah, so part of this, so what we're going to do uh, between now and June 18th is discuss endurance and leading, that is all leading up to I'm running a hundred mile race and I'll be doing it barefoot uh, on the track and trying to run at, sort of at the edge of my limits and trying to figure out, you know, what I am capable of.
2: Well, our listeners will be able to follow the race. It's sort of like a little GPS you'll have, where it'll list how far you've run, and we can see a little dot moving on a screen. Yeah, it's it's on a track, so uh, it's an indoor <laughs> track in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay, well, we can see and,
0: it uh, circle around. Maybe. Yeah, and so you, there's there's live runner tracking during the race, so we'll we'll link to that uh, as the the time approaches. So um, save the date. Yeah.
1: Meanwhile, I will also be doing a live stream of me eating 100 cupcakes. I know it'll be hard, and I but I've been training uh, also. So if you're gonna watch that,
0: what does training look like for that? Just
1: eating cupcakes. Eating a lot of cupcakes. Mostly. Yep. 2020. You know.
2: Yeah. I'm gonna. Tr- <laughs> I'm gonna try to take a hundred naps in a 24-hour period.
1: Oh, I love that. What constitutes a nap and oh. not a sleep?
2: It has to be um, between five seconds and two hours.
1: So if you just you probably have, to have less of one run cycle, right? Oh, yes.
2: Yeah, so I just want to sort of wrap up my my story
0: about running up to Kenosha uh, because f- for me that was. Uh, You know, as I think about going into this hundred mile race with whether it's eating cupcakes or taking naps or running miles, (laughs) you can definitely build up a tolerance to the type of suffering that you will be enduring in an endurance event. And in that early, yeah, in that early stages of my experience with ultra running of running to Kenosha, it wound up being about 70 miles. And I didn't know that you had to eat or drink when you ran that far. And so I didn't bring anything with me. Uh, And then I realized pretty quickly that I was really, really thirsty and really, really hungry. So I did stop and I bought a water bottle and a power bar and I ate those and I went up bonking really hard and I you ate the water bottle. I ate the water bottle, (laughs) yeah, and I threw away the power bar, because (laughs) power bars are disgusting. (laughs) Yeah, but I was, like, trying to melt snow in my mouth to, to hydrate, and I was just, like, totally bonked, and it was kind of a miserable experience in a lot of ways, but it was also, it's this really strange experience of doing something like that where your capacity to remember pain is really skewed and doesn't totally exist, and so coming out of that event, I was like, that was amazing. And then, you know, I talked to someone, they'd ask for details and they're like, that sounds horrible. so horrible, horrible, like epically horrible. And I was like, oh, it was, but it was also one of the most illuminating experiences that I've ever had. And, you know, this is something that we'll talk about the name Tim Noakes, who studies uh, endurance from a different bunch of different perspectives. But one of his big epiphanies is a lot of people run Endurance events, marathons, ultra marathons, and almost nobody dies from it. And so he developed this idea almost of this nobody. almost nobody. <laughs> yeah, there are people that definitely die, uh, but this central governor that your brain acts as this sort of onboard regulator that keeps your body from ever pushing itself even close to its potential limits. So you never experience your absolute physical limit. In anything like faster than or longer than 30 seconds, unless you can um, shut down the governor, unless you can shut down the, the governor in, um, in, those rare,
1: in those rare circumstances where people do die, are these examples of people that have actually run themselves to death, or are those situations where they have another medical, el- yeah, medical ailment like a bad heart or something like that, and that's what does the men.
0: Do you know? Yeah. So so with endurance, the, the the way that I think about it and like basically everybody thinks about it. Well, now, early on, as like late 1800s into the 1900s, the idea was that, you know, we are all just machines. Basically, we're made up of physical matter and you can understand organisms by thinking of them in a, a mechanistic way. Fashion,
2: like, say if you had a robot arm or two, if you had a robot
0: arm, for example, yeah. <laughs> and so, we are basically just the sum of our parts, excluding a mind, the mind doesn't factor into anything. Um, but now, a more you know, In body, accurate model yeah. of endurance is that we are a hodgepodge of physical and mental capacities, and um, and so, endurance is this sort of marriage between the physical component of endurance and then. The mental component of endurance. Wait, Christine, what was your, what was your question?
1: My question was in the, in those rare instances where people do die. Is oh, it... right, right, right.
0: Yeah. Um, because... so the way that I have been thinking about this is that With um, like if you look at humans and the appearance that humans have as adults, that would be the phenotype, like how tall you are, the color of your hair, the color of your eyes. Uh, And then part of the phenotype is also like behavioral patterns. And so some of those characteristics, like eye color, is really strongly controlled by your genes. So you have a genotype and the measure of how controlled that is, is called heritability. So eye color very heritable. Um, hair color very heritable. Uh, the heritable. placement of your limbs is very heritable.
2: I was just saying hair color heritable. Her- yes. Heritable.
0: Yeah. Hair. And uh, and then there are other things like say your height that is somewhat plastic, right? It has a little bit lo- broader of a range. ...of what you'll develop into that's based on environmental factors like your diet, for example. Or if you have like severe illnesses when you're younger that can stunt your growth. And so there are these factors that can play into that. And so with endurance, it's sort of similar that you have a genotype element to your endurance. Like there's a maximum speed at which a human being can run. Uh, And that's different for every human being, but that exists... And then there's a mental component that if you try to run really fast for a longer distance, then there's going to be the sort of phenotype or the plasticity built into it. That is, how well did you pace yourself? How well are you able to tolerate pain? How well are you able to set a goal? And there's some research that shows, you know, runners that get passed during a race, they slow down. And it's just like a mental trigger that yeah. flips like you are automatically now losing to someone and your experience of the race becomes caught up in this like mental or negative downward spiral.
1: Yep. Is that... I mean, I know that adrenaline is a factor, but is that why people say that you know you say i can't do this but then as soon as there is uh, some real motivation like you're being chased by a lion you absolutely can run that fast for that long
0: oh totally yeah. there was a study in in france and i can't remember the details of it but uh, uh, let's just say that the you had to keep your hands in cold water right yes and,
1: i know this one
0: and so it's like uh yeah. i will give you for every, every second that you can put your hands in water, I'll give you five cents. And so someone will put their hands in water and say, it's pretty hard to put your hands in ice water for a prolonged period of time. And interesting, like people that have trained to do endurance events are much better at it than people that are not trained to do that because there's a pain tolerance threshold that you develop with endurance um, training. And, and so if you give someone five cents, say they would be able to put their hands in for 30 seconds. But then if you say, I'm going to give you a hundred dollars every second that you can put it in there, there's this external motivation and it might be a lion chasing you, or it might be a hundred dollar bill being waved yep. in front of you. And it increases your tolerance where you can hold your hands in water for significantly longer. Wait a second longer. though.
1: This is a, a completely different uh, conversation or completely different experiment to have it be a loss or gain. Because that's a different sort of like the way we appreciate. Yeah. So if nobody has done that, then I think we should do that. Don't tell anybody.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting way. So it seems to be that thinking in positive terms rather than thinking in negative terms is beneficial, right? So like you could say, I want to finish faster than three hours versus i don't want to finish faster than or i don't want to finish slower than 3 hours for a marathon the images of of positive imagining are
2: going to have a better impact on your performance so if it's like uh, there I, was i want to make it into my vehicle and listen to some nice music as opposed to that lion's going to catch me and eat me if i don't make it into my vehicle you should focus on where you're going to get after the lion yeah, to have a <laughs> yeah where you should of a focus skate. on yeah, okay. I I want to get away from the lion rather
0: than I don't want to get eaten by the lion. I would I would maybe couch it in those terms. Yeah. There was another study where uh, people were just given a pencil and they had to either hold the pencil in their lips and uh, then take a, a test or they had to hold it with their teeth. And so when you hold a pencil with your lips, you kind of make a smiling <laughs> face. And then when you hold it in your teeth, you kind of make a this. frowny face kind of motion oh. um and so it, it actually had a correlation um to the performance on a test
2: and so do you smile do you like make yourself smile during the race do you ever do that just a, i'm sorry um, i said it the opposite if you hold it in your yeah, teeth you're smiling versus your that. lips you're frowning anyway the yeah. point the point smiling helps right so yeah do you, do you use that do you make use of that and i'm gonna say if you're running away from a line and you still can smile that's <laughs> That yeah, we yeah. Presence <laughs> you of mind. Positive thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, situation. That, is, that is admirable. But yeah, I was thinking yeah.
1: like taking a pot of gold and being like for every time you keep your hand in that water, we will either add to the pot or we will take away from the pot. So it's like you have a different kind of mental relationship with gain versus loss, which is a whole other cognitive bias that we could spend a whole season on. Which we should do a whole season on cognitive biases.
0: We definitely should. I that that would be amazing. I love that topic. Yeah. I so I think one of the things that I've discovered in doing research on endurance over the years is you know I had a lot to learn after the Kenosha run, and it, it was a, a pretty big disaster <laughs> uh, in terms of my actual performance on it. And there are all these different levers that you can tweak that will make you either perform better or perform worse in an endurance event. And research seems to oscillate back and forth between what you're, you know, quote unquote, supposed to do. And there there's a lot to be said for finding what works for you and then sticking to that plan. And so, you know, somebody might be more motivated by the external like I want to Uh, get away from the lion versus somebody else who's like, I don't want to get eaten by that lion. Uh, And so it's like, there's definitely a personal element to it. It's like, not all snakes are evil and not everybody thinks. I think this is what we were talking about a few episodes ago, where you can have a cultural association with a way of thinking that changes whether or not that's like a positive or a negative um, for you. Yeah. the idea is to stay positive
1: yeah we'll do a lot more talk into some of the more impressive endurance runners in the world in the future yeah. episodes yeah 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 why that works really. um,
0: so uh, when i was uh, you know i was thinking about uh, so what actually is endurance and things in biology are things in math are easier to define And then things in physics are a little bit harder and then things in biology are a little bit harder and then things in like cognition are much harder to actually pin down. And so I'm curious, you know, when you guys think of endurance, what is it that you think of? Are there things that are elements of endurance or are there things that are maybe outside of element or outside of endurance?
1: I think of endurance as persisting in doing something that you commonly don't enjoy doing huh i enjoy running (laughs) well i I know but that's what i think of endurance as is that you it's it's whatever it is it's an uphill battle like you enjoy running but that Mm. doesn't mean it doesn't hurt yeah so that's what my definition of endurance is i
2: think mine is more just doing something for for a long time to where there's it's partly unpleasant it might still be partly pleasant but it's becoming more and more difficult, but you just keep going and going, and going, and going, and going,
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: and going. Right See, there. yeah, I'm modeling. I'm
0: modeling it. I mean, I'm trying to run a hundred miles in less than twelve hours, so it's yeah, going for quite a long time.
2: So it is limited. Ooh, can I
1: ask yeah. you a really quick question? How yeah. do you eat while keeping pace? Do you stop and then keep? start again because that seems like a mistake right
0: yeah so in terms of the the physical stuff and this is kind of what we'll break down our coming episodes into but with endurance there you know i was thinking about trees and whether or not trees have some sort of endurance capacity and i think that endurance is there it is the mind's way of navigating external physiological stressors and so the stressors of trying to do something through over a long period of time um, you risk overheating you risk risk dehydrating you risk running out of oxygen or not getting enough oxygen fast enough and then you risk like a lack of fuel uh, and then you also risk fatigue and so your mental capacity has to be able to keep pace with those different things that become stressors, yeah. So in terms of fueling for one of these, in this is you know this is one of these things that's sort of a hot button issue right now. Is that with endurance, you can f- there are basically three ways that you can get calories uh, to fuel exercise, and they are carbs, proteins, and fats. And the big debate: proteins are kind of out, you know, that's not like a major calorie source, but People fuel in their daily lives with either a carb-rich diet or a fat-rich diet. And then in racing, it can be the same thing, but people tend to fuel with carbs. Uh, and there's some really cool research on this where if you just put sugar in your mouth and don't drink it or, or eat it uh, and spit it out, your brain anticipates that it is getting fuel In its body and you get a surge of energy. Your body is like basically releases itself from physiological, uh, the sensation of stress.
2: What if you put a big glob of fat in your mouth and then spit it out? (laughs) Uh, Fat doesn't work. It doesn't Uh, work? Yeah, sugars work. Isn't it somewhat hard to put sugar in your mouth without absorbing just a little bit of it? Because I know when I stuff my (laughs) pile with sugar cubes, which I do when I get depressed (laughs) sometimes, some of it just kind of dissolves and goes down my throat. Yeah. That's a great point. Glenn. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for yeah. validating that. They actually that. put wax uh, for
0: the studies. They <laughs> put a wax coating at the back of their throat so that uh, no, <laughs> I should no do sugars that. could enter into the digestive tract. So just like track.
2: chew on a candle and then stuff the sugar cubes in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A pretty effective way. Got it. Um, yeah. So I guess we could
0: we could start by looking at sort of the physical um, components of endurance and in the sort of mechanistic view of human endurance, the three pillars of endurance were your aerobic capacity, which is like the size of an uh, a car's engine. And in endurance athletes, this is measured in what's called VO2 max. And what that represents is the maximum amount of oxygen that can be taken in and utilized by the body. Yeah, and this is something that, is not fixed in place but can be can be trained through times
2: so do they measure this by like you like just breathe in a lot of air and they measure how do they measure that
0: well so i've had my vo2 max tested because this can when you train there are different intensities that you train at so most of my runs are i run around seven minutes per mile or six thirty per mile and It's like an easy conversational pace where I should be able to run and have a conversation with someone and not have any problems breathing or, uh, yeah, physically running. And then you can do what are called uh, lactate threshold runs, and lactate is uh, something that builds up as you start to run faster and faster and run low on your body's ability to Uh, metabolize the uh, lactate that you're building up. And so your threshold run is like just sort of beyond the edge of what's a comfortable conversation pace. Uh, So I'll do these longer tempo runs where like my marathon pace is right around my lactate threshold. And so those are workouts where I'm running like five miles at 520 pace or so per mile. So there are these different speeds at which your body is physiologically has different demands. And so, like my easy run pace, I could run forever. And my threshold run, I pace, I could run for about a marathon. And then my vo two max pace is when I'm doing uh, much faster intervals. I'm running near my my aerobic limit uh, or my anaerobic uh, capacity. And so the way that they measure this is they put you on a treadmill, they hook you up to this breathing apparatus. And so they're able to measure uh, your oxygen uptake and also your carbon dioxide output. And they put you on this treadmill and they start you at a slow pace. And then they slowly speed up and speed up and speed up and then also raise the the tilt of the treadmill um, until you basically go kaput <laughs> and you can't go any further. <laughs> yeah. Cool. The, oh, the old systems, what they would do is uh, my friend Jim Miller, who's a marathoner from way back in the day, and he got tested at uh, University of Vermont. And what they did is they would put you on a treadmill and they would run you to absolute exhaustion. And so he was like hooked up to this belt that was strapped to the ceiling. So you're running on this treadmill and eventually you collapse. And instead of just like falling onto the treadmill, you're just like suspended from. (laughs) And it's pretty intense. I mean, when I did it, I can't remember what I got down to, but you know the grade or the percent incline on the treadmill is like, 10% 10% vertical. and then you're running like <laughs> sub six minute pace for a mile and it's really freaking hard. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. You can't, you can't do that for more than yeah. A few seconds at the very end of it.
1: So in addition to the mental component and of course the air um, aerobic component, I've always been curious about the gate part of it. So the actual, morphometric efficiency and I'm wondering because when you watch people jog you see all sorts of like you see tiptoes, you see like it's like the Ministry of Silly Walks out there (laughs) Uh and I'm wondering one, what is special about your gait that's so efficient and two, is that something that you can train someone because I often wonder if I you know, I don't know if I'm a very efficient runner but I always ask like people to give me feedback on how to be a better like a more efficient runner
0: yeah well so your gait changes as you go from a walk into a jog into a uh you know an all-out sprint and uh, uh race walking I definitely don't like uh <laughs> I apologize to anyone who's a race walker but a, 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 a uh a walk is technically a gait in which uh, one foot is on the ground at all times, and if you're a quadruped, where three of your feet are on the ground at all times, you're never airborne at any point in the the in your stride. And race walking, they are airborne all the time, so it's like impossible to regulate. So it's it's a little bit absurd. So you have these different uh, ways of moving at different speeds. So there's no correct gait that's would be appropriate for all different speeds there's also no appropriate gait that is uh you know universal there are some definite patterns like if you look at the highest performing athletes they tend to run the faster you go the more you tend to land on your toes than on the heels of your feet and so i you know back in 2008 i've I started incorporating more and more barefoot running into my training so that I would be getting immediate direct feedback from my feet about my form. And this coincided with I, I was also around the same time starting to learn how to track animals uh, and I was doing that all the time. and you can see what are called these pressure releases where in an inefficient gait an animal will step down onto the ground or a human and they're, their, uh, the weight will then give and their foot will slip. And if they're really inefficient, it'll slip, 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 like multiple times. So you get these multiple, what are called pressure releases. And if you're really efficient, you just kind of in, even at a, like a, you know, a faster gait, you would gently land onto the ground and your foot went s- slip or slide around. It would just land and then take off and move to the next stride. And so, I got really interested in this when I was tracking domestic dogs versus coyotes and domestic dogs are really sloppy and coyotes are really efficient with their gait. And the guy that I was learning how to track from, Mike Kessler, he was saying that, you know, the big difference is that dogs know that when they go home, they're going to get fed. And the coyote doesn't know if it's going to eat in the next yeah. hour, the next day or the next week. And right. and so I... There were sort of two things that were going on at the same time. One is this like energy efficiency. So if you are calorie deprived, you have to be more efficient in how you move through the landscape, you know, how your feet are landing on the ground. You have to take all these things into consideration in a subconscious way, right? You can have to walk in like a straight line. You can't zigzag all over. So I started doing these like prolonged fasts for like several months at a time where I was still running like 60 to 100 miles a week, but I was trying to decrease my caloric intake significantly to like sort of... um,
2: Simulate the coyote way.
0: Yeah, simulate the coyote way. So, (laughs) uh, and then at the same time, I was also running barefoot for a lot of my mileage. And so the idea with that was I wanted to get immediate feedback from my feet. Um, if you wear big, thick padded shoes, then people tend to land on their heels because they have all that cushioning there. But if you take that away and you land on your heel, the impact, the source of impact when you land on the ground is going from your heel directly into your skeletal system and right up to your hip and lower back. But if you land on the front of your foot, there, there's padding up there and then you have all those tendons. And so the force of impact winds up going from your the skin of your foot to these fat deposits and then into your tendons and into your muscular system. And so it's sort of sidestepping this harsh impact. Uh, and you can see this when you look at the impact intensity of someone's stride on a treadmill if they land on their heels versus if they land on their uh on the forefront of their foot. So it is just it's a, a gentler pattern to land on the forefront. I do probably anywhere from like a quarter to half of my mileage barefoot in the hopes of making my stride more efficient uh if you have this big spike in energy when your foot hits the ground then that's energy lost. You're giving that energy to the ground versus if you have a gentle stride, then you are retaining as much of that energy as possible. So it's just a more efficient way. And this is the last part of it. So I mentioned aerobic capacity, lactate threshold. And then the third pillar is running a econ- uh, economy or how efficient you are.
2: This is just a pro tip. You know, you can feel free. I'm not going to charge you for this. Yeah. Have you thanks. thought about <clears throat> running across really thin ice on like our Vermont lakes as a sort of way to further reinforce like the coyote effect, like minimizing your impact energy into the ground because then like your I life might I've be I haven't done stake. it, but I, I've heard what the, the hardest part about running on ice is not running
0: on ice, but starting to run on ice because there's the coefficient like a cartoon, of static just friction. Like a,
2: like a cartoon, you just kind of like your legs yeah, move for a I while and jet then off. Psh, I was yeah. going
1: to suggest running on water. Have you, have you considered that?
2: Well, that's next level. That's... I
0: haven't, but that would be really fun. You'd have to get really big shoes.
2: <laughs> or be really light. Be Maybe really that little fasting fast. thing. Yeah. 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 Water striders. Water uh, striders are good at it. They don't have shoes.
1: What is the most common, uh, whenever there are injuries, what is the most common injury for long distance running? And when I say long distance running, I mean what you do. The long, long distance running.
0: Yeah. I mean, injuries are incredibly common in long distance runners. It depends on, you know, how you're running. So with barefoot running, it, there's, you know, the f- first injury that everybody gets is top of the foot pain, TFP. And I, uh, I thought about my transition to barefoot running and sort of these three different steps of one is like barefoot jogging, where you're just getting your feet strong enough to handle the friction. Uh, as you're running over the ground. And then once you can do that for two or three miles, then you can transition to barefoot running. And this is where you can just go for like a five to six mile run at your normal pace. But your skin is toughened up. You, the dead cells on the bottom of your feet start to pack together. And so you have this like thicker pad. You also get fat deposits that are laid down. Your bones get stronger. Your tendons get a little bit stronger. And then eventually you have to build up to barefoot racing where your tendons and your muscles are significantly stronger to be able to handle those forces. I ran a half marathon pretty early on. I think I ran about 112 or something and I ran that barefoot and I didn't have any cushioning under my feet and I got tendonitis right after that in the top of my foot. And so that was, yeah something that was pretty dumb and pretty easily avoidable. I just hadn't built up the the right amount of strength in my tendons. So this is like common for barefoot running, but, you know, people get all sorts of running-related injuries, foot injuries like plantar fasciitis or right shin splints.
1: Yeah. Yeah, runner's knee. That was always my problem was my knees. Oh, I was just going to ask more about leading up to this because the obvious question for somebody who's a barefoot runner is how do you build up? the it's not so much endurance but the, I guess callous, because I've seen you running on cu- country roads and I've wondered did buy a lot of glass maybe some fun syringes every single, <laughs> every few <laughs> yeah. steps what do you do about that
3: yeah
0: I did see a, a syringe actually today on my run oh, um I in the winter in Vermont I do most of my running on the treadmill while my son is fast asleep and so I do a lot of treadmill miles Uh, But then, yeah, um, I don't know. I've never, I stepped on glass once in uh, Florida. It was just like a small little um, splinter of it or sliver. And I took it out of my foot and then I kept running. The biggest thing, so I've run 100 miles barefoot uh, back in 2017. I ran a track 100 mile race. I was hoping to run a full 24 hours, but I got a crack in my foot that opened up and I had to stop racing, but afterwards my feet were totally swollen and I just hadn't put enough time running at any given point. So, you know, with Tim Noakes, who developed that central governor, his is that you have a subconscious mind that you never actually even come close to your physical limits because your brain is preventing you from getting to that place at basically any cost. It's like always in protection mode and anticipating what is going to happen down the line. And so it shuts down your ability to, yeah, push yourself into any significant amount of, uh, of debt. And I think he, I mean, he's definitely a bit of a firebrand. And I think that he overstates the case of the central governor. There are definitely physical limitations. And I probably stopped sooner than I could have but my body was also starting to fall apart because I hadn't built up enough foot strength because I just, I didn't do the, I mean, I think leading up to that race, I was doing maybe 70 to 90 miles a week, which is definitely not enough to then go out and run a hundred mile race and expect to yeah come out unscathed. So it's just, you know, uh, as much as it is barefoot running, I mean, the trend now in shoes is with you know, hokas have these shoes that are insanely padded, and that's sort of the trend and like the all the new carbon plate shoes all have really, really thick soles. the you uh world athletics now put a cap on the thickness for racing for purposes of world record. so you can't have a shoe that's more than 40 millimeters. so that's like over a centimeter of heel. <laughs> um so you're basically running in,
2: yeah, not high heels, but sort of. Is it legal to have little springs, little springs in the shoes, kind of bounce you like a trampoline? Well, that's it. I mean, now, now there's a
0: carbon fiber plate which is acting as a lever, and so you have this thing that's like Nike has a patent on the angle of curvature of their carbon fiber plate, and every shoe company is now developing one of these. Um, but they're supposed to, you know, as you as you land, if you're especially if you're landing on your heel. There's this dampening effect as the the material that the sole of the shoe is made out of, as that absorbs the impact, it is stealing away energy from your stride, right? You're giving some of that energy to the earth. And so the carbon plates allow some of that energy to be stored in the plate and then it acts sort of as a spring to bounce you off, yeah um, oh.
1: Yeah. You know in swimmers uh, that are really successful, like for example, who's that uh, really impressive swimmer who's like physically Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps, he's like physically perfect for swimming. What yeah. is the ideal if you could put together like the ideal running body and like brain and whatever, what would it look like? Like can you explain? I don't I can't remember exactly why. Uh you're I'm looking
2: like... at Teague right now. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> <really. laughs> it's really necessary
0: <laughs> yeah well unfortunately i'm 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 too large to be a good runner i'm about five ten and 145 pounds and uh i'm a, a monster-sized Drag. runner compared to yeah so if you look at world record holders uh they've gotten smaller and smaller so i mean it's it's surprising you know you see a group of elite athletes in the front pack and they're all running together and and they all look the same size they look normal human sized and then you like I've gone to some of these uh national championships and I'm on the starting line and I feel like a giant next to some of these runners where you know they're like five six 115 125 pounds
2: so are we going to talk about your mental like what you're thinking about I'm interested in that. like how do you Other block out C the cola. pain? Yeah, you might have moved on with your mantra, but... Yeah, I definitely moved on with my mantra. One of the things
0: I find really interesting is... So I'm setting out to run 12 hours. And, you know, there's a huge amount of unknown... I've run 100 miles once before. But there's... I was anticipating in that one running 24 hours. And so my pace for that was way slower than what it will be in June. And there's this uh, other model that's called the anticipatory model where your body is really good at making all these intuitive calculations. And the more trained you are, the better at you are at making those intuitive calculations. So if you look at marathoners and how much marathoners speed up over the last mile and a half of their race, it turns out that people that are running close to five-hour marathons, about 40% of them are able to speed up over the last mile and a half versus the elite marathoners don't speed up at all. And the reason is that, you know, someone running close to five hours that probably has a lot less training under their belt than an elite marathoner, they are really bad at, at making those internal calculations from the gun and pacing correctly. So I'm hoping that over the course of my training that I will have developed an intuitive sense of what my pacing should be, how frequently I should be drinking, how frequently I should be fueling, and all of that. Um, I, I don't know who it is, but there's a sports psychologist that I was listening to a bunch of years ago, and he was saying that running is 90% physical and 10% mental, and then racing is 90% mental and 10% physical. So, you know, there, there are most of the mental piece hopefully will be dialed in during all of that training. Um, but you know, my coach is going to be out there with me. Um, and having a coach is incredible because you have this external positive feedback force (laughs) that, you know, he's an expert in designing a training plan. This is uh, Sam Davis, who's my coach. And so he has expertise in designing, a training plan that will get me into peak performance. So I have total confidence in his ability to design that training uh, program. Uh, I have total confidence in my ability to make changes along the way. Um, And so when I show up to that starting line, I know that I've done everything in my capacity to get me there and to, you know, propel me for the next 12 hours. So, I mean, that's part of it. There's also, you know, there's like, Uh, mental fatigue. So if you focus on a task for a really Mm -hmm. long time, this isn't totally the same, but your eyes, it's called the Troxler effect. Your eyes vibrate back and forth at a small, imperceptible rate. And if you fix your eyes on a single point and basically disrupt that, then uh, the image that you're looking at starts to disappear. And that's called the Troxler effect. Um, But your, your body or your mind uh, has a really hard time focusing for prolonged periods of time. And so it takes lots of shortcuts to tune out feedback. Um, And in an endurance event, you don't want that because you want to stay on your pace through the whole race. So one of the non-banned substances that I'll be using is caffeine. But caffeine.
1: Want to make you poop your pants?
0: Yeah, it's a diuretic. So it's it's sort of a, a tricky balance of being able to take it in but not have to, yeah. you know, pee out everything. <laughs> or you just um, go.
1: Just wear a diaper.
0: Yeah, you could just wear a diaper. But yeah, so caffeine's like super helpful for uh, allowing you to stay focused. So there are some tricks. I, uh, w- you know, I always keep a bird list whenever I'm running. And for me, <laughs> what that does is help me stay connected,
2: but slightly dispassionate about my body you mean the birds you're seeing as you run or like just reviewing birds you saw
0: yeah no 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 like birding year. while i'm running uh so i was just at that 50 miler you know i was watching like early i started at dawn and i got the dawn chorus of all of the big-eyed birds that come out like the robins and then there was a shift from the ro- robin song to the uh chickadees and then it was on this football field, and slowly all these ring build goals started to fly in. Oh, cool. And they were over there for like 30 minutes, and then they left. And then I was left with nothing but starlings foraging on the outside. And so it was kind of this cool thing where you, there's another guy I mentioned, Tim Noakes, and there's this other guy, Markora. And he talks about this instead of having a central governor, that you're constantly making. Conscious decisions about whether or not to continue running or to continue at your perceived effort. And so, a lot of the stuff that he talks about is how do you tweak what your perceived effort is? And uh, you can definitely train yourself so that your perceived effort seems lower. But one of the other things you can do is just like smile a whole bunch and imagine that you're having a great time and having the way that you feel about how you feel, be positive. So like you could feel really terrible, but in your mind you could say, oh, I feel terrible. This is awful. Right. And that would destroy your race. Or you could say, I feel terrible, but that's because I'm working my ass off right now. And bad. there's no other place in the world that I'd rather be than right here, pushing my body right up to the wall um, and seeing how long I can sustain that for. And so that's the second part of making this conscious decision about this is how I feel about how I feel, and it's great. Like, I should be feeling pain. I should be experiencing this. But for me, part of what I try to do is, like, abstract it a little bit so that I'm intentionally trying to have an out-of-body experience. Um
1: then i have three questions yeah if i can remember all of them the first one is what does your coach tell you as you are running to keep you does he just remind you of the pacing does he keep you updated on how far in you are or what kind of statements does he make to keep you mentally in charge and physically in charge
0: yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got a coach. His name's Sam Davis. He is a coach here in Vermont. And, yeah, he was a total running stud back in the day. He's been coaching me for maybe six or seven years or so. And, yeah, we've been working together a long time. So he definitely knows my strengths. He knows my weaknesses. He knows my style of running, my training philosophy. And so, yeah, he can tailor everything to, yeah, me as a runner in a holistic way, which is awesome. Um, yeah, he is a total Pollyanna and it kind of drives me crazy uh but also i totally love it um where and this is what i want in you know a, a coach is to have someone who is just like so enthusiastic he's realistic you know he's not going to tell me you know you're smashing every record when i'm having a terrible day but he's like a very good external reflection of like you're doing exactly what your body is capable of doing you're right on pace so he's you know like at the race he'll be Handing me fuel, he'll be taking splits and helping me do. Does he compliment you?
2: Does he like you're the man? You're good you're, looking. Yeah, <laughs> your, hair your eyes are beautiful. Today. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah <laughs> uh, I need that. Maybe you could, I could hire him for Glenn, that. Your belly button yeah, you could,
1: is great. Don't thank you. Let it I exist. needed that.
2: He could Let's be see. your life coach. I'm a little worried about it. Okay, good. Just clarifying that. You have other questions, Christy? I also have a couple of questions, but I want you to go ahead. Okay, I'll try to keep them.
1: I should probably write things down, but you go next and I'll write these other. Maybe we have the same questions.
2: Okay, I just got to go back before it gets lost to the Troxler effect. So you said if you focus your eyes on a specific thing, it makes everything else disappear? So uh, so like if there's um, an
0: X on a white sheet of paper and there's a blue ring around it. And you stare at the
2: X, the blue ring will slowly disappear. Does that mean if I stared at a blue ring, my X would disappear? <laughs> yeah, so I have to deal with her sometimes. I think I think that's exactly what happens. But could you listen. like, <laughs> if you're dealing with someone unpleasant, is there a way you could just focus on a point and that person would sort of disappear to you? <laughs>
0: Well, so mind. it's interesting because like if to you if you wear a watch, this is how pickpockets work, right? If you wear a watch, you have this constant source of information that's touching your skin and giving you feedback. And that would be overwhelming. Like if you were constantly aware of every. That's how uh, pickpockets work. More, well, <laughs> hang on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea.
2: How pick they, wear, work. <laughs> they wear you like a watch. Come on. First of all, you just admitted that, you know, pickpockets work. Yeah. Which explains Um, how you pay for your coach. But also. So if you have a watch on
0: and then someone puts pressure right next to where your watch is and then they take your watch off, your body doesn't differentiate that. Like it's it starts to tune out constant information. Right. So like you're wearing a hat right now and you're probably not aware of the hat. But if you wiggle it. Then there's new information being delivered to your neurons and, or your nerve endings. And so then, yeah, it, it, it's saying, okay, this is new information, pay attention. But I'm wearing a shirt and I'm wearing pants. Uh, that's debatable. Uh,
2: <laughs> and uh, the luxury. I don't of know. Line. I was going to say, yeah. people
1: don't know. Glenn's wearing a top hat right now. That was the hat. Yeah.
2: And I'm wearing it as my pants. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Christine is actually doesn't have a chicken with her. She's dressed up like a chicken. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, right, so pickpockets then would put their hand like against your butt and it would like- Yeah, they don't
0: want to make like a, a jarring motion to give your body new information, right? So they, yeah. Make a
2: little motion. Yeah, well, we yeah, we, we drown out all kinds of constant sounds, constant smells. Yeah, Um, and so if your ex was constant enough, <laughs> i could yeah. just so i just have be around her more yeah and then it just kind of and then <laughs> yeah. and then do the vibrating and then focus on the ring okay i just wanted to get that written it down okay go ahead with your question christine
1: <laughs> okay my next question is when i have in the past run i have tried to listening to books on tape while i was running and it just didn't work for me and I'm wondering yeah. why. Is it because my brain is actually listening and kind of doing a little bit of extra work and understanding and that is yes. burning fuel that I shouldn't be burning while I'm running? So
0: you've definitely experienced this before well, I don't wanna to presume too much about how deep your thoughts are. <laughs> but um, if you're walking with someone and you're having a conversation you're just talking about you know, the the weather or whatever making fart jokes or something inane then you can just keep walking yeah um but if you (laughs) um if you if you get into like a really intense physical or uh philosophical debate or you're trying to like for me i can't do math calculations when i'm running and i'm constantly trying to because you're trying to do you know uh you know, if I keep running this pace for the next uh, three hours, then I'll come through the 50 mile split at this time. And when you try to do higher level thinking, your body can't devote its attention to autonomous functions like walking and stride. And so if you're having an intense conversation while you're walking, often you'll just automatically stop walking mm-hmm. and just be standing there and continuing the conversation and it's sort of your your conscious intense thinking mind taking over and you can't perform the other functions at the same time um so that's probably why They're
1: you know i get so caught costly. in these like
0: endless loops of dumb thoughts when i'm running
1: pepsi, for a long period of time pepsi cola has the beat has the
0: has the what pepsi <laughs>
2: yeah um what's the dumbest yeah. thought you've ever had while running Ooh, good one to remember Oh, uh, just a dumb thought. It doesn't have to be the dumbest.
0: No, they're kind of all, all, all dumb. I, I don't know. It, it's often just around numbers where, you know, I do a lot of my workouts on the track. And sometimes I'm doing a workout that has like 40 or 50 laps. And so I'm like, okay, if I do one more lap at this pace and then I'll finish that lap and I'm still having the same thought. <laughs> like I haven't gotten anywhere with my mental calculations. <laughs> so...
1: Well, I so this also reminds me of the fact this might be unfair, but a lot of intense athletes, whenever you hear them interviewed, you're not this is not you're not you don't fall into this example. I just want to say this, but they tend to be kind of slow to speak like there's uh, there's something about intense athletes where they're just like. The brain's in a different space. It has a different kind of metabolic process, or something. You're gonna get so beat
2: up for saying. <laughs> I can't. You're yeah, cut, right this, now. Out.
1: Bam, 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 cut <coughs> this out. We'll cut this out. Yeah, what a nerd. Uh, but I have noticed that. Um, I mean, the brain is. I mean, humans, in particular. I mean, our brains are so metabolically costly that mm. we got to do something to counteract that. And then my flat, final question is about the runner's euphoria and if you've expen- experienced it and what it was like for you.
0: I had I've had different types of experiences that are sort of out of body incredible. My sophomore year I was trying to qualify for nationals in the steeplechase and I was running at North Central's last chance meet. Actually it was the last last chance meet <laughs> so the week like a week and a half before nationals. And the race was supposed to go off at like 9.30 or 10 o'clock at uh, night. And there was a thunder and lightning storm that was running in. And NCAA rules, if there's lightning before a race, you have to delay the start 30 minutes. And every time you see lightning, you have to keep delaying. So we got on the starting line and they were trying to start the race. So And people had flown in from all over the country to race here because it was the last chance and it was really competitive. And so, right when we got to the starting line, lightning flashed, and so they had to delay the race. And it just kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And I don't think I ran until maybe one thirty or two in the morning. And it was just this like really charged night. It was so beautiful. It was like kind of warm. It just felt great. And I ran that race, and I wound up running nine ten, which was the uh, my PR. And
1: ten minute miles. Uh, I
0: qualified. What
1: ten minute miles
0: what 10 minute miles
1: yeah i was making a joke because you're f- super fast
0: oh yeah it was it was yeah that it, it was not a funny joke <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fighting words christine Doctor you take that back um <laughs> But anyway, so I, I ran this race and steeplechase is a f- it's if you don't know it, it's uh, three uh, three3,000 meters. so uh, just shy of two miles and there are four barriers per lap and then one of them, there's an extra one that has a water pit afterwards that you have to jump over. And it's just this awesome bizarre race. And the barriers are barriers. they don't bend or fall over if you knock into them. And so whenever you come to a barrier, there's like a lot of jostling for position and everything. And I just ran that race so perfectly. And I just even still, I have this image of watching myself run and being in this pack of 18, 20 guys all running around the same pace and trying to qualify. And I just like perfectly navigated through the commotion. And it was just amazing. I never once felt tired. You were in the zone.
2: Yeah. Did you catch the steeple?
0: I did catch a steeple.
2: Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Good question, Glenn. Thank
0: you. <laughs> um, I mean, but then there's usually there's, you just chase after it. Yeah. But there. so in the zone is, uh, is something that you can uh, sort of create conditions where you can experience it. So you get it when you have to have high levels of concentration in a really peak experience. So if you go like a lot of trail runners you know, describe being in the zone where you're running and you're like bounding over down trees and navigating rocks and stuff. And you have to think really, really quick. So it demands all of your attention on that one thing. And so that's really different from the runner's high where you get just this like flood of endorphins and probably part of it is so that you don't remember the pain of the experience um, so that you don't develop like a callus or like around your nervous system or your like a a fear response. And I've definitely had that like on on a couple Sundays ago when I ran that 50 miler, the last two laps, I knew I was done at that point and I was like sprinting and I, you know tears weren't streaming down my face, but I got like super choked up and really emotional and it just felt really powerful. And I think it's sort of this addicting sensation that that a lot of ultra runners strive to, yeah. Or to re up their endorphin <laughs> dose. Is there
2: any way you can convince yourself like each lap is the last lap, so you can have that constant experience of euphoria? Like I'm finishing. You'd have to be pretty strong mentally, I guess.
0: You can get confused. For so you sure. can have
2: it two or three times by just being disoriented.
0: Yeah, I had a, a race a couple years ago where it was a nine mile race, and I was running you know, neck and neck with this guy and I saw the mile marker in the distance and I was like, I have one more solid mile left in my legs. And there are all these like mental tricks that you can play on other people. Like when I pass someone, even if I'm exhausted, I all of a sudden get upright and I control my breathing and then I just (laughs) glide right by him. So I just want to like break their will. (laughs) Um, And uh, and so this guy had pulled up ahead of me a little bit and then I was like, all right, Right before that mile marker, I'm going to just blow by him and I'm going to dust him and I'm going to not win the race because I, you know, I think I was like in sixth or seventh place. But I was like, I'm going to beat him in those hundred, the next hundred meters. And so uh, and then I would just run the last mile and I knew I had that much energy left. And so I like blew past him. And then I got closer to the mile marker and it said mile seven, not mile eight. <laughs> I was like, Oh my god, I'm so stupid. And then like fifty meters later he passed me and the same thing. And I was like, dude, I totally mistimed that <laughs> and he just started laughing at me. <laughs> and I just got I just I got destroyed. Like I yeah. I didn't even have another mile at that point. I just um but I think sometimes it works in your favor where you lose track of the actual distance and you're just caught up in like the sensation of
2: the moment and it feels great. Yeah. Do you ever mutter things when you pass someone like, you know, you, you got a rip in your pants. You might want to check that out. <laughs> just <have to laughs> cycle that. <them out. laughs> yeah. Uh, you got something between your teeth. You might want to look at that.
0: There's a lot of camaraderie amongst distance runners. I try so- and keep my like mental tricks to myself. Well, that's what I was going to ask
2: because um, one time I was talking to this woman who, who she'd won a bronze medal in the marathon, I think, in the Olympics. And she basically said she was trying to destroy and annihilate and like kill almost. Like she wanted to kill everyone else who was in the race. So I was wondering if that like competitive kind of like hunting, just you know, must destroy the competition thing fuels racers in general and maybe you sometimes or if you like kind of tend to be more peaceful and camaraderie helps out like you're in this pack of like-minded individuals feeding off each other
0: board games and uh Mm -hmm. running are where like my animal self get to come out and i just want (laughs) to like destroy (laughs) and so i love tapping into that competitive part of me but i there's like no personal feelings behind that like i don't care about the other runners but it's like a it's an external motivator. So I went to university of Chicago and our rivals, whether or not they knew it, I have no idea, but was wash U. And so I just like hated everybody who ran for wash U. <laughs> and, and so like, I, you know, at, uh, I apologies to Kevin Gale, who this story is about, but at nationals that my sophomore year in the steeplechase, I w- with 200 meters uh, to go, I came around, uh, sorry, this is my senior year. Uh, I came around the bend and then I could see Wash U in the distance. And it was one of these things where like I had already given my all and I didn't think I have anything. But left. then you
2: saw the hated enemy. And then I
0: saw I saw Kevin Gale from Wash U and I was like, I hate you so. And I have nothing personal against it. But I was like, I want to destroy you. And I was in ninth place. And I was like, I do not want you to get all American. And so I sprinted, and I like caught him right at the line and, and I got all American, but it
2: was it like top eight, top eight are all American.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I always, yeah, I always like think about those things. I, um, I still I picture
2: like a Wash U person in front of you sometimes. If you do that Yeah. I don't know if you
0: thinking. can see it in the, the background with all the eyes crossed out. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I was, this was when I was, I had been out of shape for a long time and I was getting back into shape and I ran a like a New Year's resolution race. It was a 5K, and I for some reason dressed up like a Sherlock Holmes raccoon, um, <laughs> and then I Makes ran sense. it. And I, you know, my I had these corduroy <laughs> pants on with a big old raccoon tail fluffing out, and I went out pretty fast because I remembered being fast but i was out of shape so i couldn't actually run that fast and then after about a mile my friend uh john passed me (laughs) and when he was passing me he's like you know they make running clothes for a reason (laughs) and he just passed me he looked so smooth and effortless and it just destroyed me and yeah that was the end of and you hit hit the opium sherlock holmes
2: he did a lot of opium yeah maybe he was yeah um you could use that to comfort yourself in that race
3: yeah
0: (laughs) Well, maybe we'll go ahead and end there. Yeah, we didn't even really talk about endurance and animals during this one, but we're going to start talking. Humans are animals. Humans are animals. Yeah. And... Yeah. So in the next few episodes, we're going to look at endurance from a few different perspectives. So we'll look at the physiology of endurance. We'll look at the morphology uh, and how that plays into how animals run. And then we'll look at nutrition. And then lastly, psychology. So we'll dig into all these topics uh, a little bit more. So stick around,
2: stay tuned. And yeah, we'll see you next time.
3: Bye. Goodbye,
2: listeners. And by the way, listeners, we will give you um five cents for every minute you listen to.
1: Exactly. That's or true. we will take away a hundred dollars from your bank account.
0: That's what we'll do. Yeah. In a certain We'll do like... a random uh, we'll yeah. do a random assignment into two groups.
1: Yeah. Right, and so maybe a third check. group
0: that gets a hundred dollars a minute. Yeah. So just send us your bank account numbers and we will get that all set <laughs> we'll up. We'll take care of everything
2: else.
0: <laughs> bye. bye. All right. Bye. Beep beep. I've spent much of the last 30 years trying to figure out what's so enticing about endurance running. and If you're anything like me, you still don't really have a clear reason, but at least now you have some idea of what endurance is. In our next episode, we'll look at the physical challenges of endurance. Until then, if you're digging the podcast, give us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can also share a podcast with your fellow nature nerds or head on over to crowspath.org slash podcast and get in touch with us there through the Woodland Message Board. Here you can ask us questions, suggest future topics, and even post fake ads that we'll read on the air. Alright Naturalists, that's it for now. We'll see you next time on The Single Acorn.